0: The subject for tonight, to each is given the
1: manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. My beloved brothers and sisters and respected friends, it's a warm night tonight and we have a lot of ground to cover. The subject tonight is an analytical one, it will require your... Careful attention to the numerous passages cited as we attempt to see the background to the spirit gifts in 1 Corinthians. Now, our topic has special relevance for today. The Pentecostal movement, which specializes in spirit gift possession, was said by time to be the fastest growing church in the Western Hemisphere. Life Magazine regarded it as the third force equal in significance to the Roman communion and to historic Protestantism. Now in America, A.A. Ward Revivals Incorporated grossed $2,692,342 in 1968. And that's not counting the uh, cut for the two ministers who participate in his work. But in 1968, he printed 55 million pieces of literature, maintained daily radio broadcasts on 58 stations, and weekly television programs on 43 stations. Now that shows you the uh, impact that Pentecostalism is having in America. And only a while back, I noticed that a Church of England uh, clergyman was speaking in tongues in the Melbourne area. The problem made uh, front-line news in Sydney. There was a television program in Adelaide on tongue speaking. So, brothers and sisters, this is a very important topic tonight. It's a problem which has even touched our own community in the past. Now, it seems to me that there is polarity In the religious world, we find people are either gravitating to historic Protestantism or Roman Catholicism, if you like, as an alternative, with an emphasis on reasoning and modern scientific investigation and empirical approaches to acquiring truth. We find that quite often these people reject the verbal, plenary, and fallible inspiration of scripture, and if we were to attend their services, we would likely find quotes from Bonhoeffer, letters from prison, Bishop Robinson, Honest to God, Pierre Berton, The Comfortable Pew. These kind of modern publications have really taken the place of the biblical narrative in the other churches. And needless to say, this particular group is less theologically oriented and has become preoccupied with social concerns. They're the groups that are working in Biafra, Oxfam, and so on. Now we have a a more radical shift and drawing far more adherence in the Pentecostal wing of sectarianism. Historical Protestantism is finding a lot of empty pews. They have their problems. The Pentecostal church, their meeting places are full. Their emphasis is upon emotional contagion. They deliberately attempt to achieve an emotional climate. They do this through the piano and the organ. They do this through the oratory of the preachers. And they do this from other facets of their service inclined to... uh, have uninhibited responses when it comes to their experiences and their altar calls. And usually there's a de-emphasis upon the rational and the reasoning and the quoting of biblical text. although many Pentecostals still use their Bibles. Their emphasis is upon conversion, personal experience of getting to know the Lord Jesus Christ and baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting that statistics indicate that women predominate in the Pentecostal movement, that anywhere from two-thirds to three-quarters of Pentecostal religious groups are composed of women. And this was a statistic compiled by Brian Wilson in his book, Sex and Society, where he dealt with the Elam Foursquare movement in Great Britain, Christian science, and the Christadelphians. And he also pointed out and this has been validated by my own studies, that mental illness is an antecedent to many of the conversions that occur in the Pentecostal movement. And it so happened upon investigation that this was a factor involved in the Church of England clergymen who apparently broke into glossolalia, tongue-speaking, here in Melbourne. So these are some factors that we should keep in mind. On this side, you have the sacred cow scientific investigation. The sacred cow, of today's society. Over here, you have a repudiation of the sophisticated, the intellectual, the rational, and rather a whole giving of one's personality, feelings and emotions, and such expressions as getting lost in the Lord are used by members of this particular religious group. Now, brothers and sisters, this may well have some implications for our lecturing titles and our special efforts. If we find the religious world becoming compartmentalized and with an immense amount of of influence and prestige today going to the Pentecostal movement, it might indicate that we ought to be moving our lecture appeals more and more in this area. Well... It's the proposition tonight <clears throat> that the Holy Spirit gifts were witness to the Word. And the signs that the Lord Jesus Christ said would follow were given to confirm the Word. And when the Word was completed in the first century, the Spirit gifts were withdrawn with the death of the disciples. Secondly, that the gift of tongue speaking in the first century was not glossolalia it wasn't the unintelligible speech of the pentecostal movement but it was in fact foreign languages a god-given ability to men who may never have made the foreign language a personal subject of study and we attempt to move through this narrative very carefully to see whether these points can be proven Now, 1 Corinthians 13 is usually considered to be a eulogy on love. But we shall see tonight that 1 Corinthians 13 fits a context of problems that existed at Corinth. Now, in chapter 12, verse 28, a hierarchy is set out. In verse 28 of chapter 12, the apostle says, And God has appointed in the Ecclesia first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, then healers, helpers, administrators, speakers in various kinds of tongues. And notice, brothers and sisters, where does tongue speaking come? It comes at the bottom of the ladder. But what is emphasized today Today, emphasis, emphasis is upon miracles, alleged miracles that occur, and glossolalia, an uninhibited babbling in unintelligible speech. But the apostle puts tongue speaking right at the bottom of the list, and first, apostles. Now, who, or what, is an apostle? Well, if you've been reading your newspapers, you'll notice that the Mormons claim to have twelve apostles. And with the death of uh, McKay, uh, they've decided upon another successor, Smith, who will now take over as head of the Mormon Communion. They think they have apostles. The Christian Apostolic Church thinks they have apostles. But what is the criterion of Scripture for an apostle? Well, back to a reference in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, a reference we have already looked at in previous addresses. Verse 12 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you in all patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. You'll notice, uh, brothers and sisters, I'm using the revised standard version tonight, which provides a good comparison with your authorized version. But notice, what are the signs of an apostle? An apostle has to be able to work wonders, mighty works, and signs. But what kind of mighty works and signs? Well, can we do an historical survey beginning in Acts chapter 3 with Peter? And brothers and sisters, we'll be flipping up a lot of passages tonight. Please bear with me. The supporting evidence is crucial for our conclusions. Here we have a man in verse 2 of Acts chapter 3 who has a congenital illness, not a man with a mere headache or some other uh, undiagnosed complaint. He's a man that's lame from his birth, and he was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful to ask alms of those who entered the temple." In verse 5, Peter responds. Uh, he fixed his attention upon them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but I give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Now notice, instantaneous, instantaneous, correction of the individual's illness and he's made whole unlike some of the modern faith healers who are unsure which of their patients are going to be cured and which aren't. In this case Peter says look in the name of Jesus of Nazareth stand up and walk and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong that's the work of an apostle able to cure a congenital illness Acts chapter 5 here we see another side of apostolic work. We looked at this passage last night. Ananias and Sapphira, they kept back part of the money from some land they had sold, and Peter said, verse three of Acts five, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? The latter part of verse 4. You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Now where, brothers and sisters, is the apostle today with the authority of Peter to smite down a liar in the ecclesia? Acts chapter 13. A similar phenomenon occurs. Verse 6 of Acts 13. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came unto a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Eliamist, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, withstood them seeking to turn away the proconsul from the faith. And we have the, uh, the result. And now, verse 11, Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead them by the hand. Where, brothers and sisters, is the apostle today, even in the Mormon church, who has that kind of authority to exercise? Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we have the long speech of the apostle Paul. Verse 8 of Acts chapter 20. There were many lights in the upper chamber where we gathered, And a young man named Eutychus was sitting in the window. And he sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and embraced him and said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, so he departed. And they took the lad away alive and were not a little comforted. And so you notice here, brothers and sisters, that a man is raised from the dead by apostolic power, authority delegated to chosen men in the first century. You know, in chapter 19 of Acts of the Apostles, verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that handkerchiefs, Or aprons were carried away from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And just as you have fraudulent practices uh, pointed out here in Acts chapter 19, in the West Indies, do you know that Oral Robertson, America, was inviting um, people in Guyana to right away to New York City, and he would send down to them prayer cloths. That if they put their hand on the prayer cloth on the radio, they would be cured of their various complaints. Now I went to a lot of homes in the West Indies of people who followed Oral Roberts. I never saw one that was ever cured of a congenital illness by placing his hand on the radio on a prayer cloth. In Canada, I wrote away to preachers who speak in America. Many of them belong to the Negro groups of the southern states, of the southern states. And they invite you to write away for prayer chains, prayer cloths, all sorts of trinkets on the basis of this passage, claiming that miraculous cures can be effected by the prayer of faith. And you might note, brothers and sisters, that nearly all of them solicit a tenth tithe. And interestingly, the Time magazine uh, sets out its heading Getting Back Double. And that's significant. You don't find very many of these preachers, the poor of this world, rich in faith, they're pretty well off, which in itself is suspicious. But you notice, brothers and sisters, that an apostle had the power to effect a cure of a congenital illness, Acts chapter 4. They could smite a man dead, Acts chapter 5. They could raise a man like Eutychus, Acts chapter 20 that God could work extraordinary miracles by even handkerchiefs from the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 19. And I leave with you the invitation tonight. Find us the Apostle today who has the spirit gifts that can work those kind of miracles. In First Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle says that God has set second in the Ecclesia, Prophets. Now, friends, we'll be looking at a number of passages to see the background to the work of a prophet in the Ecclesia. Can we move, first of all, back to the well-known passage in Isaiah 41? This is the unique challenge... Of the Lord God of Israel, verse 22 of Isaiah 41. Let them bring them, and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are gods. And so Yahweh, the God of Israel, challenges all the Baals of the heathen. Tell us what the former things are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Declare to us the things to come. Now, it's interesting that there were false prophets in Israel, as indicated by Deuteronomy chapter 13. And we should look up this passage. There are two passages in Deuteronomy that are helpful in seeing the background to the work of a prophet in the first century. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. If a prophet arises among you, or a dreamer of dreams, and gives you a sign or a wonder, And the sign or wonder which he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or to that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So you see, brothers and sisters, that the test of the man of God isn't only that he makes a pronouncement about the future and lo and behold, it comes to pass. That may be coincidental. He says there's another test. If the man who makes the prophecy about the future says, uh, let's worship other gods, then you'll know, says the prophet Moses, that the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you really love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, let us not miss the point. We have many people today that claim to work alleged miracles and signs and wonders. The Mormons have a monument to the seagull in Salt Lake City, Utah, because they believe that the seagull devoured these great hordes of crickets that were about to consume the green fields of Utah. Joseph Smith claimed to be able to... uh, Heal sick animals by the laying on of hands. He's the founder of Mormonism. He claimed to be able to set broken bones without x-rays. There are all sorts of claims. There were the Irvingite claims in America. St. Francis Xavier, an alleged saint of the Roman Church, claimed to be able to make uh, candles burn on holy water rather than oil. And so the papacy saw fit to canonize him. He claimed to have the gift of tongues, the gift of Japanese, but his letters were full of the difficulties of the Japanese language. There are many signs, wonders, and miracles alleged today, as Jesus said there would be. And as Paul said, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. So it's not supposing, brothers and sisters, not surprising, in this last dispensation, that we should see a great rush to the alleged miraculous but Deuteronomy sets out the claim of a man who says he's a prophet a worker of signs or wonders also is contingent upon what he has to say about doctrine because as Paul told the Thessalonians a man is saved by sanctification of the spirit manifested in the word and belief. Of the truth. And therefore, it isn't merely the signs that he claims to parade, but what does he say about the gospel elements? We'll come back to that in a minute. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 22. To claim spirit gifts, brothers and sisters, is a very serious matter. Deuteronomy 18, 22. Uh-huh. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word which the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you need not be afraid of him. So you see, the real test of the prophet as a prophet is whether or not the pronouncement he makes about the future comes to pass. And interestingly enough, Jesus picked up the same test and he said this I tell you this now before it takes place that when it does take place you may believe that I am he John 13 19 to see what John what Jesus is alluding to he's alluding to the criterion set out in Deuteronomy that the prophet must make a pronouncement about the future that is subject to verification. If it's verified Then he's a prophet of the lord providing his doctrine is in keeping with the revelation of god elsewhere if not then he's condemned and as you recall earlier in deuteronomy 18 verse 15 the lord your god will raise up a prophet like unto me moses from among you from your brethren referring to the lord jesus christ so it's fitting that in verse 22 jesus should apply that test to his own teaching before the jews of his day And can we now flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just to pick up an allusion here. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse
0: 2.
1: You know that when you were heathen, you were led astray to dumb idols, However, you may have been moved. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, it was the practice in the first century for these heathen priests and priestesses to speak through the mouthpiece of the dumb idol. In other words, by a tube, they would uh, present the words allegedly coming from the idol, but that was the work of the priest or the priestess. So Paul alludes to them as being dumb idols. Idols were dumb. It was the priestess or the priest speaking through the idol. But I want you to understand, says the apostle, no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus, be cursed. And so you see, brothers and sisters, the test of the man that claims to have had some kind of an experience Some kind of confrontation with the Lord Jesus Christ is what he has to teach because no one, for example, can say uh, Jesus is cursed and have the Spirit of God. The criterion for evaluation, what kind of doctrine does he teach? And so John admonishes the believers of his day to uh, try the spirits and to see whether or not these spirits come from God. God. He said that there were many false prophets that had gone out into the world. Beloved, he said, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit which does not confess Jesus of God This is the spirit of Antichrist. And so you see, in the first century, where they had the problem of the Gnostics, who denied that Jesus came in the flesh, the determining criterion was what a man taught, not some experience that he alleged to have had, but what did he teach? Because Jesus said in the last days, when he returns to the earth at his judgment seat, many will come before him in that day, and they will have these things to say. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, and do many wonderful works in your name? Matthew seven twenty two. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. See, so see, Jesus sets out for us that there will come before him in the day of judgment, individuals that will have claimed to have prophesied in his name, have done many wonderful works in his name, and cast out demons. And yet, brothers and sisters, they'll be rejected. So because a man comes to us and says, uh, I can cast out demons, or uh, I've been the recipient of a mighty, wonderful miracle, Uh, I had cancer and I was healed, and uh, God has given me the gift of uh, working miracles, that in itself, brothers and sisters, is not a criterion as to whether or not the healing that occurred was divine healing or whether he has the gifts of the Spirit. Because Jesus says in that day, people will come claiming to have done all these wonderful things and yet still be rejected. Again, can I emphasize, one is saved by sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. And it seems rather ironical that those religious groups that most today proclaim spirit gifts are so far removed from the teaching of Scripture. Nearly universally, they accept the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. They vary in the doctrine of the Trinity. Even groups in Toronto, for example, that claim to have spirit gifts, that claim the Holy Spirit is leading them into all truth, claim different things about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a Jesus-only faction in Toronto which claims he's not part of the Trinity. Yet they claim to work miracles, healing, tongue-speaking. Nearly every Sunday night in Toronto when we go down to this meeting to talk to these people, you can observe tongue-speaking. Yet they they deny the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. In the same city, you have Pentecostals that claim Jesus is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and it's blasphemy to teach anything else. Now, surely they both can't be right. This is eternal life, says Jesus, to know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Yet here we have two religious groups, both Pentecostals, both claiming to be led into all truth by the Holy Spirit and coming to different interpretations on the same biblical text. Now something's wrong there. And not even that, remove it further. You've got Mormonism, mutually antagonistic doctrines to the Roman communion, and the Roman and Mormon communions, mutually antagonistic with the Pentecostal communion. Yet all three, with millions of adherents, claim to have divine workings of spirit powers and gifts. Therefore, we do very well today, brothers and sisters, to prove all things and hold fast that which is good. And one of the great tests of Scripture is the test of the gift of prophecy. Turn with me, please, to... uh, Acts chapter 11. We see the prophet in action. Now, this requires a point of clarification. You recall from our reading in 1 Corinthians 14 that one who uh, prophesies speaks to men for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. But, brothers and sisters, the gift of prophecy is not confined to edifying, to building up, to encouraging and consolation. And Acts chapter 11 indicates this, because in verse 27, in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. That's the Ucumini, the Roman world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. And the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brethren who lived in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So you see, the apostle, the the prophet, had really two functions. He was a foreteller insofar as he worked for edification, consolation, and exposition alongside of his foretelling. But let us not forget, brothers and sisters, this aspect of a first century prophet with a gift of prophecy, foretelling the future. And notice, Unlike the prophecies of the Old Testament that involve sometimes thousands of years and thousands of people that took a long time for their verification, Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, and yet 39, the prophecies on from 40. But here you see the prophecy was a uh, short-range prophecy, very susceptible to verification, either a famine came or it didn't. So you had a very plausible criterion for distinguishing whether the prophet was true or false, and it resulted in edification and consolation for the brethren. He predicted a famine would occur, and it did, A.D. 41 to 54, and so the brethren undertook relief for the poor brethren. We see Agabus again in chapter 21 of Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 21. In verse 8, you'll notice that Philip the Evangelist was one of the seven and uh, stayed with him, and he had four daughters, unmarried, uh, who prophesied. Now, that wasn't uncommon uh, either in the first century or in the preceding centuries. There is Deborah and Huldah and Nodiah, all prophetesses in the Old Testament. In the New Testament period, you had Anna here you have the four unmarried daughters of Philip. And so while we were staying for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his feet in hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this girdle and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Foretelling now comes the practical implications. And when we heard this, we and the people there begged him not to go up to Jerusalem, the import of the first century prophet working for the benefit of the ecclesia. There's a different uh, kind of prophecy recorded for us in Paul's epistle to Timothy. And again, brothers and sisters, you notice that the prophecy given by Agabus here was susceptible to test. It could be verified for its truth or falsity. Now, Paul's epistle to Timothy. Uh, Chapter uh, 4 of his first epistle. Verse 13. He instructs Timothy. Till I come, attend to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophetic utterance, when the elders laid their hands upon you. You notice in verse 16, he's told to give heed to his teaching, and perhaps the gift that Timothy was given was the gift of teaching. But uh, this goes back to uh, another illusion uh, in Timothy, which you can look up at your leisure, to the laying on of hands where Timothy was given the spirit gift possession. So you see, by prophetic utterance, the young man Timothy... Was given a spirit gift in the first century. And this was the role of a prophet to foretell the future for the upbuilding and edification of the ecclesia. But the implication, brothers and sisters, this provides a very appropriate test for the latter day claimants to spirit powers. Those who magnify the importance of miracles and tongue speaking, where are the prophets? Now, a man that has some uh, undiagnosed or poorly diagnosed complaint that goes to a faith healer and comes away and says, I'm a healed man, hallelujah, he was a, a faith healer and I'm a saved man now. This is different, brothers and sisters, from the man who claims that he has the spirit gifts and you ask him to produce the evidence of prophecy. You see, you're away from the subjective element. If a man says a famine is going to come in ten months in the area and you'd better begin some relief work for the brethren, then of course we have a statement that is capable of being tested for its truth or falsity. And a test of the Pentecostal movement today is where are the prophets? McKay of the Mormon Church claimed to have the spirit gifts just like the apostles. Do you know how many prophecies he made? He made none and he's a prophet of the Mormon Church. How many prophecies has the head of the Roman communion made? None that I'm aware of. And so, brothers and sisters, we have an inferential argument against those who claim that today the spirit gifts are in evidence just like they were in the first century. We might also pass a comment on the gift of revelation in chapter 12 because if you notice there, the apostle refers uh, to the gift of revelation. Now, presumably, revelation would be a part, it would be a gift that would go alongside tongue-speaking, that the man who was a tongue-speaker also had the gift of revelation. Because in chapter 13 of Acts the Apostles, verse 1, we find in the Ecclesia at Antioch there were prophets... And teachers Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menon, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So you see, Paul had the gift of uh, prophecy and the gift of teaching. Verse two And while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, They laid their hands on them and sent them off. So you see, the gift of revelation was the communication of divine knowledge about something of importance to the Ecclesia. Here it was the separation of Barnabas and Saul for the work to which they were called by the Holy Spirit, the power of God. And so you see, in the vibrant uh, environment of the first century, God worked very directly with this Ecclesia in the Apostles, in the prophets and in the giving of revelation, information that may otherwise never have been knowable to those who were involved in the revelation. Separate me, Barnabas and Saul. The believers cogitating who the best men uh, to go might never have come to that conclusion, but by manifestation of the Holy Spirit power, a division was made and Barnabas and Saul undertook their work. Tongue speaking. Can we come first to Acts chapter 2. And, brothers and sisters and friends, we want to work through this section very copious indeed because the modern accent is upon not prophesying or uh, not apostles, but on tongue speaking. Glossolalia, the phenomenon by which it is commonly known in America. It comes from the Greek word glosa for tongue and from lalia, to speak, the verb laleo. And that's the breakdown of this word, glossalia, the usual term to describe unintelligible utterances that occur in a high state of religious ecstasy, glossalalia. Is it uniquely Christian? No, it is not. And I recommend for those of you who are interested interested in it, the Modern Tongues Movement by Robert Gromacki. It's a modern book, not published by the Christadelphians, but it's an historical analysis of tongue speaking. And you will notice in that book that he um, catalogs information about the Eskimos of Canada that engage in religious ecstasy in tongue speaking. That it's a phenomenon that can be observed by voodoo practicers in Haiti who have no relationship at all to Christianity, break into this phenomenon of glossomalia, unintelligible utterances that are um, uttered in a high state of religious fervor. Now that's important, brothers and sisters. One does not need to take recourse to God's Holy Spirit power to account for an individual who claims to have spoken in tongues. There are millions of people in the world who have spoken in tongues who make no claim to be Christian, as witness the uh, Haitians in Haiti or the Eskimos in Canada. Only two groups, and there are many more that he catalogues in this book. Now, I hope to show now that glossolalia in the first century was not what you observe in the Pentecostal movement today. It was the God-given ability to speak foreign languages that you may never have made the subject of study. And can we begin, for our evidence, in Acts chapter 2? Now, we have to watch carefully in reading through this narrative two words, glosa, and another word that occurs, dialectos, Now this is the usual word for tongue that we mentioned, and this is the word for dialect, as you can see from the Greek word, or for language, as it's translated in the Revised Standard Version. Now the Pentecostalist says, since glossa is used in Acts chapter two, tongue, this must mean an unintelligible utterance, something we can't understand, something that we break into when we're uh, very, very close to God when we pray at night. And so they're hanging their argument in Acts 2 on glossa. Now, what I'm suggesting tonight is that these two words are completely synonymous in Acts chapter 2. To engage in glossa in Acts 2 was to speak foreign languages. And therefore, those two words, glossa and dialectos in the Greek, are synonymous in Acts chapter 2. Can this be shown? Let's follow through the evidence verse 4 and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues that's the Greek word glosa so that's your first uh, word to note glosa verse 4 as the Spirit gave them utterance the latter part of verse 6 because each one heard them speak in his own language dialectos verse 8 and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native dialectos language and it names the uh, areas from which these people came Parthians Medes Elamites and so on verse 11 Cretans and Arabians We hear them telling in our own tongues, glosa, the mighty works of God. And so you see, brothers and sisters, from a comparison of these statements, of these words, in each of the verses cited, you see that they're used synonymously. That to speak with other tongues was to speak in his own language each of us in his own native language, wherein we were born. They hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, furthermore, this word glosa is never used to my knowledge in Scripture for unintelligible speech. This word occurs many, many times in Scripture, and it's never used to my knowledge for unintelligible speech. But there are a number of places where it's used for foreign languages. So the Pentecostalist who says tongue means unintelligible utterance just hasn't looked at the way that word is used in the New Testament. It's used for foreign languages. And here's a few of the passages. Revelation 5, 9. Thou hast redeemed this out of every people, tongue and kindred. Tongue used for foreign language. Revelation 7-9, chapter 10, verse 11. And if you consult a the concordance, there are plenty more. It's also used of uh, intelligible speech. So it's used of foreign languages in Revelation 5-9, etc. And it's also used of intelligible speech. For example, Romans fourteen eleven. We won't take time to look these passages up now. But this passage says, uh, "And again, praise the Lord all Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise Him." Romans 14:11, Philippians 2 verse 11. And First John 3:18, just three of many other passages to indicate that glossa is used of intelligible speech as well as foreign languages. Now, there's a point of interest in Acts chapter 2 that is worth exploring here. There has been difficulty in the past in determining whether there were two miracles wrought, whether, for example, the Galileans spoke uh, some unintelligible sound, but it was understood by each of the persons there present in their own native language, or whether, in fact, the Galileans really did speak a foreign dialect that was recognized by people who gathered there. Well, it seems to me the latter is the way to read this text. For example, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Now, if all they did was to engage in an unintelligible utterance, could this be said to be other tongues? Unintelligible utterances are only one kind of utterance, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And notice that the disciples engage in glossolalia, speaking foreign languages, and that this is what brings the multitude together. So it's not that you have two miracles, it's that you have the miracle wrought on the disciples. Now there were Jews, verse 5, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of this, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Now it seems apparent to me that disciples break into speaking foreign languages that they never made the subject of study. This brings a multitude. They come together and the disciples, some speaking the language of the Parthians, other the Medes, the Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, those from Pontus and Asia. And they're astonished because these ignorant Galileans are speaking and each one heard them speaking in his own language, but in verse 14, uh, the tongue-speaking miracle brought the multitude together. Then Peter stands up with the eleven, with his voice, and presumably he would speak in the common language of Aramaic or Hebrew for those gathered, and he addresses the whole multitude that's there gathered. He shows that it's a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, but only brothers and sisters. A partial fulfillment. And then he begins to preach the gospel message to these Jews, verse 22 onwards. Well, can we step back now to 1 Corinthians chapter 14? Tongue speaking occurs in several narratives in Acts of the Apostles, with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, where it's a divine stamp of approval on the Gentiles. It occurs in Acts chapter 19 as well, but because of time limitations, we must press on to chapter 14. Now remember, brothers and sisters, we're trying to establish whether glossolalia is an unintelligible utterance or whether it's a foreign language. And the other piece of evidence comes from a citation in verse 21. In the law it is written, says the Apostle Paul, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now we don't have time to go into the background of this passage. It's quoted from Isaiah chapter 28 verses 11 to 12. And in that context of that passage, The men of Ephraim that wouldn't listen to the words of the Lord God of Israel were going to be addressed by men of another language that they would not understand. And you know who that was? That was the Assyrian and the other invaders that came up to the kingdom of the north. Now, brothers and sisters, those invaders didn't engage in glossolalia before the Israelites. They spoke foreign languages. And because the apostle Paul employs that context in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we can infer thereby that he's referring to foreign languages and not to unintelligible utterances. And there are another, a number of other similarities with the context here and in Isaiah 28 that we cannot take time to explore now. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 deals with a problem. It's the abuse of the gift of tongues in the Corinthian ecclesia. And you might note that the word unknown does not occur in the Greek text. That's an insertion in the, in the AV, but does not occur in the authorized version. There's no reference to unknown anywhere through this narrative. The tongue certainly wasn't unknown. A tongue would only be unknown if you had a man standing up at a platform in Corinth and speaking the language of the Egyptians, and there were Arabians and Greeks there that couldn't understand him. Well, of course, the tongue would be unknown, but it was unknown because there was no interpreter there to interpret the foreign language. And so the apostle says in verse 2, One who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. Why? No one understands him, and he utters mysteries in the Spirit. The latter part of verse 5, He who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues unless, brothers and sisters, someone interprets so that the ecclesia may be edified. Tongue speaking was never designed in the first century to be exercised on an individual basis in the ecclesia without respect for building up and edifying the ecclesia. And one who stood up, for example, in an assembly, you have the tongue speaker here. He's speaking Egyptian. But you have a Greek brother over here or maybe a brother that only knows Hebrew, say, theoretically, it doesn't matter. A brother that only knows the language of the Laodiceans. Well, he's going to be speaking mysteries in the spirit to the Greek brother, the brother from, from uh, the Laconians, and the brother who only speaks uh, Hebrew. He's going to be speaking mysteries in the spirit unless someone interprets for him, as you can see from the chart. Unless there's some linguist there that has the God-given capability to interpret For the gift was given so that the ecclesia may be edified, verse 5. And note, that's the emphasis all through this passage, verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages, note RSV, rendering of verse 10, there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. In other words, if you stand up in the assembly at Corinth and um, speak a foreign language and nobody understands it, it's not that the language is unintelligible in itself, it's that we must have an interpreter. So with yourselves, says the apostle. Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the ecclesia. The great failing of the Corinthians. Verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Nevertheless, in the Ecclesia, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than ten thousand words in a tongue. Notice the purpose of tongue speaking? To instruct others. And even in verse 14 a passage that's really cited uh, quite often by the uh, Pentecostals. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, is interpreted by them to mean, well, I'm so caught up in spiritual ecstasy that I don't really have a cognitive control over what I say. I don't have an intelligent grasp of my content, but I feel with my spirit great ecstasy with God. But read this in Moffat's translation. Moffat says, my mind is of no use to anyone. And Paul elsewhere in his epistles speaks about bringing forth fruit in other believers. And if I pray in a tongue, a language, uh, I pray, but my mind is unfruitful because my mind is not being used by anyone else. It's not producing fruit, unless there's someone to interpret for the benefit of those who cannot understand the language which I speak. Verse 22. Thus sign, thus, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Well, prophesy, well, prophecy is not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole ecclesia assemble and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not all say you're mad? Then he goes on to uh, lay down the groundwork on which... Should be exercised. In Corinth, they were so enthusiastic to parade their gifts, they were all standing up and engaging in speaking in foreign languages. And so, in 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle corrects this abuse and shows that the gift of tongue speaking was designed to edify and build up the Ecclesia. It's designed to instruct others. Therefore, says the Apostle, I'd rather speak five words with mine understanding then 10,000 words in a tongue that no one understands. So, number one, verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. Just an aside, brothers and sisters, since the apostle lays down this instruction, I have on a number of occasions presented myself to a Pentecostal assembly where tongue speaking was being engaged in with a Spanish idiom, which one wouldn't likely uh, know unless he had made Spanish a subject of study or unless he really had God's divine spirit power. And so when the Pentecostals got up and broke into glossolalia, unintelligible speech, I stood up and spoke Spanish. Then I asked the interpreter to interpret what I said. And needless to say, you can anticipate the response. Either they never had an interpreter there, or when they did, the interpretation bore absolutely no resemblance to the Spanish idiom. I know of another two occasions also, in my experience, where this has been tried and where the same result ensued. But, says the apostle, in the assembly, if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silence in the ecclesia. The latter part of it, the apostle goes on to the use of revelation. If revelation is made to another sitting by, let the first be silent. Again, you can just imagine the the kind of uh, meeting that they had in Corinth, and the apostle instructs these uh believers that the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. It's not a case of a man standing up in the assembly and says, "Well, I am led by the spirit to speak in tongues" or uh, I just received a prophecy from the Lord, the apostle instructs, let all things be done decently and in order. And the spirits of prophets, verse 32, are subject to prophets. And then he lays down the fact that women ought to keep silence in the ecclesias. And this is not practiced on the whole by Pentecostals. In my experience in America, Pentecostal preachers, for example, are women in the Oral Roberts movement, and women tend to predominate in tongue speaking. But the Apostle says in verse 37 If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that what I am writing to you is a commandment of the Lord. So, anyone who wants to dismiss the instructions of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in their assembly, the Apostle says, Let him know that what I'm telling you, if he thinks he's spiritual or a prophet, is the commandment of the Lord well can we fit this in five minutes into the context of 1 Corinthians 13 if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, which is agape. By the way, brothers and sisters, I might uh, point out here, agape is not synonymous with charity, as is popularly understood, because in verse three, he points out, if I give away all that I have, if I give my body to be burned, but have not uh, agape, uh, I gain nothing. So agape is not simply charity, Agape is the care that he refers to in verse 25 with the preceding chapter. And unfortunately, we haven't had time to move through this sequentially, but I'll point out several of the allusions as we go through. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, the gift of wisdom and all knowledge, Gift of knowledge, chapter 12, verse 8, 9. And if I have all faith, gift of faith, so as to remove mountains, alluding to Jesus' statement about faith, and have not agape, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, a complete altruist, and I deliver my body to be burned in sacrifice, but have not agape, I gain nothing. Agape is patient and kind. Agape is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Agape does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong but rejoices in the right. Agape bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Brethren, just imagine, if you're in that ecclesia at Corinth and you read this epistle, think, for example, if you had the gift of helps a rather insignificant gift in the first century ecclesia. And you were a man of great social standing in the world around you. And a brother in the ecclesia is a teacher with powers, and he can heal. And he's merely an artisan. How do you think you would feel when the apostle wrote that to you? Agape is not jealous. Or imagine if you were a man who had the gift of tongues. And you had been standing up with all this multitude at the Ecclesia at Corinth and paraded your gift. Or maybe you were a prophet who had a revelation. And you like to insist on your way in the Ecclesia, standing up exercising your prophetic gift. And the Apostle writes to you and says, Agape isn't jealous or boastful, it's not arrogant or rude. Agape vaunteth not itself, says the Apostle. Or think if you're a person that didn't have any of these gifts in the first century ecclesia, and you were a man like a prophet, he said, oh, we don't need brother X. He doesn't have the spirit gift. And so the apostle outlines a great analogy with the human body likened unto the body that we're all members of. And he says there's feet, there's hands, there's eyes, there's a head in the ecclesia. And all of these are essential to the organic unity of the Ecclesia. And where you vie in the Ecclesia and despise one another, you're breaking down that organic unity for the edification and the consolation of fellow believers. And it's in this context, brothers and sisters, that that 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians occurs. And you can imagine how this would bite into those Corinthians. A man who wasn't going to let his liberty be judged by anybody else's conscience if he wanted to go down and partake of a feast with the idol and sit down before the Lord Serapis well what is that to my weak brother and Paul goes through and he says Agape does not rejoice at wrong rejoices in the right Agape bears all things even the weak brother believeth all things hopes all things and endures all things Agape, says the apostle, never ends. As for prophecies, the gift of prophecy, they will pass away. As for the gift of tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away, it's a gift. For our knowledge is in parts and our prophecy is in parts. Some had the gift of prophecy, others the gift of powers, some the gift of governors, others interpreters. He says, it's a partitive state, but when the teleoi comes, the complete comes, the partitive state will pass away. And then he makes a comparison. He says, it's much like the interim arrangement of a child. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. The allusion to the gift of tongues, we can hardly miss it. I thought like a child, gift of knowledge. I reason like a child, gift of wisdom. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. This is not to reflect adversely upon the spirit gifts, but it's to show the interim nature of their provision. For he says we see in a mirror dimly, that's alluding to James's comment about looking into the perfect law of liberty, the word of God. Now we see in a mirror dimly But then, when the teleos comes, the mature state of the ecclesia, with the fullness of the revelation of God, then shall I understand fully, even as I have been fully understood by God Almighty. So, now abides, he says, faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love or agape. And notice, he says, "The Spirit gifts are partitive in nature. Gift of prophecy, gift of tongues, healings. There's coming a day when that which is in part will pass away. When is it? When the perfect comes. And that word is used in verse 20. Brethren, be not children in your thinking, chapter 14. Be babes in evil, but in thinking be mature. Be teleios." the mature state that would come with the fullness of God's revelation in the rest of his written word. Then the partitive state will pass away. And he makes the two comparisons, a child and looking into a mirror. And he stresses, so now, emphatic, now abides faith, hope, and agape. Now, brothers and sisters, if those spirit gifts were to continue right down to the time Jesus Christ came back, why would he expressly state, so now abides faith and hope? If, in fact, this referred to when Christ came back, why the need for hope? For the apostle comments on hope. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who, who hopes for what he sees, says the apostle. No, there was a time coming that was shortly about to come when the apostles had died And no one was enabled to uh, transmit these spirit gift powers by the laying on of hands that the ecclesia would have to rest on, faith that came from the written word, hope that came from the written word, and agape that was generated by the written word. And so the spirit gifts were an interim arrangement to confirm the word and to build up the ecclesia. And when Philip is down preaching at Samaria in Acts chapter 8, He's able to work signs, miracles, and wonders, but he cannot transmit this power to other individuals. And so if you read in verse 14, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Hence we see, brothers and sisters, the culmination of the Spirit gifts. Peter had told them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, the people to whom he spoke, Acts 2.39, to your children, those on whom the apostles had laid in their hands, to all that are far off, a word used for the Gentiles, far removed from the gospel, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to them. So in two generations after Jesus Christ had died and had been risen, had risen from the grave, the spirit gifts ceased. Now if you're interested, you might want to read in uh, Mr. Gomacki's book about the substantial historical evidence that in actual fact this was the case, that the spirit gifts about the second, the end of the first century died out because there was no longer any individual's to whom God had imparted the capability to transfer the power of laying on of hands, and so on. And so the spirit gifts ceased. Brethren and sisters, through all the technical and uh, analytical work that we've done tonight to try and ascertain the import of uh, apostles and prophets and, uh, and tongue speakers in the Ecclesia, Let us not forget the exhortation of the spirit gifts. Spirit gifts were given, verse 7 of chapter 12, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Verse 25, that there may be no discord in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, says the Apostle, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, brothers and sisters, when we walk by faith and not by sight, when we rely on our meditation of the written word, let us not forget the talents that we have. Spirit gifts were given for the common good. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And the exhortation of chapter 13 comes through to us today. Agape is patient and kind. Agape is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Agape does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. Agape bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things.